Welcome to episode 11 of the Swamp Flix Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm James Cohn here. Uh, we were supposed to have a guest today and they dropped out. And then we got another guest and they also dropped out. So <laughs> it's 100% James and Brandon today. Why doesn't anyone want to talk about video game movies with us? Well, it's Let's... such a beloved genre, the video game movie. Exactly. I can't, I can't believe people don't want to come over. Yeah. Um, you know, people have like real lives to deal with apparently. Um, this is a real life. <laughs> Before we get into that, uh, what have you been watching since the last time we were we were on here? A lot of video game movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, like, that's like all you watched in, in the past few days. Uh, that's, that's crazy. What, yeah, I mean, pretty much all I've watched is the ones on the list and a few other ones. Too. I actually watched these like over a week ago, so I'm gonna be a little fuzzy on the details because I've been going to the movies a lot. I took off Friday and went to see like four things. Okay. Um, I've seen some pretty good stuff though. Uh, this movie tickled. Uh, it's like a documentary about um, this website ring that uh, videotapes "quote unquote" uh, competitive endurance tickling, and it's oh, these athletic man. guys like straddling each other and tickling. And there's like this BDSM element. And the more they look into it, the people who make the the softcore porn uh, are like despicable pieces of shit that like. Uh, sort of um, manipulate all these like young kids into getting into this like competitive tickling thing. It's a really fucked up documentary. It's, it sounds really <laughs> fucked up, dude. So that was good, and I saw this movie High Rise, uh, which you absolutely have, have to watch. It's okay. amazing. Uh, oh, you... I did see Southbound, by the way. Oh, Southbound? Did mm-hmm. you like that? I loved it. What uh, What'd you think? Uh, I really... Well, actually, I really liked like two of the stories. Mm-hmm. Um I actually I, I really enjoyed the one at the very beginning where the guys are getting followed around by creepy death They're like jellyfish skeletons. Yeah, that was cool. And then the guy that has to like perform surgery. Oh, that was a great one. That was a really good one. And then I enjoyed the the David Yao one too. I just but, like seeing David Yao in a movie. Like I could watch more of him. Yeah, <laughs> and he played that role really well. I mean, he was just kind of a guy on the fringes. You know, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Did you see that like triangle connection I was talking about, where it's like it's like supernatural and like kind of a purgatory kind of way? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, they're basically you know they're all in hell right. pretty much, and they can't get out. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was really good. Good recommendation. Um, but yeah, High Rise is uh, from this novel from the same guy who wrote the novel for Crash, the Cronenberg movie. Oh man, that's like one of my favorites. Yeah. So this is like this like. 70s version of dystopia so it feels like in the 70s but it's actually the future they live in this high-rise condo with like all these amenities to it like a mm-hmm. gym and a grocery store and about halfway through the movie the power goes out and people just go manic for like unexplained reasons and the whole situation just devolves into this nasty party that never ends oh nice and it's got sort of like a snowpiercer like setup where it's like haves versus have-nots and they're sort of like separated by like what floor they live on, like the rich yeah. live at the top. That sounds awesome, and it sort of reminds me of uh, a movie I saw a while back. It's like the, uh, it's directed by Luis Buñuel. Oh uh, yeah, it? yeah. The one where like they can't leave the oh, room. The exterminating angel. Yeah, yeah. Exterminating. It's like kind of a similar premise to that. I uh, my review I was writing for High Rise. Uh, I was talking about that movie mm-hmm. and like other movies that we like that are I call it the party out of bounds where like these people are acting nice in this like high functioning society right and then things get terrible 
like maybe Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where it like starts mm-hmm. off a little like civil, and then things get really shitty, but nobody leaves. Like they just kind of like stick it out. Yeah, uh, Exterminating what... Angel is definitely like the top example of that. Yeah, that's what it was reminding me of when you were describing it. That sounds great, dude. Yeah, you have that's to watch that. That's in theaters now. Um, actually, it's already on VOD, so you can um you can probably like uh. Cool. Download it for like five bucks or three bucks or something like that. I will certainly do that. Um, and like we said earlier, we're going to be talking about uh, a few iconic video game adaptations, uh, mostly from the 90s and 2000s. Uh, and before we get into that, our Movie of the Minute segment, where we talk about Laurie Anderson's documentary, Heart of a Dog. Uh, and that documentary term is pretty loose. So Definitely. All that's coming up to you right, right now. now. When Lola Bell got very sick, we took her to the hospital. We spent a lot of time with vets, and they always wanted to give you this speech they prepared about pain, which was, of course you don't want her to be in pain, and so we just give her a shot and put her to sleep, and then another shot, and she stops breathing. And every time they would say that, I would say, listen, I know you want to say this, but we're not going to do this, so never mind. But they would still try to give the speech anyway. I was really worried about this, so I called our Buddhist teacher and he said, animals are like people. They approach death and then they back away. And it's a process and you don't have the right to take that from them. He said, you should just go and get her from the hospital and bring her home. Pretty much exactly what your Jewish grandmother would say. Get some good tranquilizers, get some good food, and bring her home. And now it's time for our Movie the Minute segment. This is where James and I bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Um... The movie we're watching today I brought up on an older episode when we talked about our favorite movies from last year that we just hadn't caught up on yet. Um, I just watched this documentary written, directed, produced by Laurie Anderson, who's uh, one of my favorite musicians. Um, She usually does this kind of strange spoken word uh, kind of music. It's mixed with uh, a little bit of new wave and a little bit of classical arrangements. Mostly what's interesting about her work is the way she slows everything down to a crawl and makes you think about each word as they come out of her mouth. Um, She has this sort of like strange meditation on language and what it means and how it can be used to like manipulate brain patterns. It's very fascinating stuff. Uh, And this documentary uh, is not really a documentary, even though it's under the HBO documentary brand. Um, It's mostly her putting visuals to her meditative um, work that she does in her music. Um, It's supposedly uh, about her dog, Lola, who was a rat terrier who died. Um, But she also talks about the death of her mother and the death of a close friend. And all of this is uh, sort of covering up the idea that she's also talking about the death of her husband, Lou Reed, who died um, a few years before the dog, I mean, uh, died after the dog, but he died a few years before the movie was made. So uh, sort of by contemplating death through all these different um, 
people and animals that she was close with in her life. She's in a roundabout way talking about her husband. But that's really a starting point uh, Mm -hmm. because the movie talks about uh, the surveillance state that we currently live in. Uh, It talks a lot about 9-11, the nature of technology, uh, Buddhist uh, theology, a lot of philosophy stuff. so I just I guess uh, it's it's more of a, just a strange meditation piece than any sort of like document of a thing that happened. Um, so before I ramble any more on about the yeah. different things this movie is about, um, James, what did you think about Heart of a Dog? I um so there were there were a lot of parts of it that I really liked. Mostly um, I kind of like like you said it's hard to classify it. Like is it's not really a documentary. It's more of like a I don't know, like, yeah, meditative, almost reminded me of like a Terrence Malick, you yeah. know, I'm not a huge fan of his work, but you know, something like the tree of life, where it's just a meditation on a lot of different ideas. And, uh, I found that the stuff that I was most drawn to just because it's of interest to me is like when she went into philosophy and, um, and also the political stuff with like talking about nine eleven and all that was like, really really interesting and then towards the end of the movie when she starts talking more about like death and ghosts and all this it uh as I was watching it just kind of like washed over me a little bit like I was just kind of experiencing it and not really engaging well but not in like a bad way like it, it was engaging like there was a lot of cool ideas in there like she talks about you know, Heidegger and uh, Kierkegaard and... David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace, yeah, all this. And then the, you know, Buddhism is interesting to me too. So talking about um, all that. So just all this stuff kind of washes over you and it's a pretty kind of not overwhelming experience, but it's just something that it's hard to describe you just have to watch it and like like a trance almost yeah and that i mean that's the meditation part you just like kind of sit there let the images flow over you and like yeah i really enjoyed it it was unlike really any documentary i've seen um i especially liked her when she's talking about how the dog uh when it realized that the hawks were (laughs) trying to attack it in the same way that when the hijackers flew the planes into the buildings, like there was this new kind of fear. Yeah, there's a whole uh, quadrant of threat that people didn't recognize. That like, oh, it, attacks can come from the sky. From the sky, and, and that it, her dog had the same realization when it realized that hawks existed. <laughs> yeah, the, just stuff like like that was a great observation. Like I really appreciated her kind of worldview. You know, and I think there's some humor in that. Like to to say that it's like a heady philosophy movie is accurate, but I think she knows how ridiculous the leaps she's making mentally are. It's just fun as like a mental exercise. So like, but that's what like philosophy is about too. Is like yeah. a lot of philosophers will do that. It's a very like playful kind of movie. Like it's not trying to over intellectualize everything. It's like you said. It's she knows that it's kind of a ridiculous comparison to make but it's it rings true so i mean it has like some meaning there yeah and i mean there's like parts where it's like literally just her dog playing piano Mm -hmm. or like her dog like making paintings and she's like my dog's pretty good at this 
But yeah. you know she know you know she knows how ridiculous it is. Uh, there's a I like the um, leap she makes where she's describing Iron Mountain, which is like this corporate uh, which we had experience with. Yeah, every <laughs> corporate job I've ever had is Iron Mountain related. Uh, but yeah, they just store documents in these bunkers, mm-hmm. and then she's like, uh, maybe it was NSA. Uh, she was talking about one of those two where she compares that to like the way that Egyptians used to store. Uh, all of these, all of information in like pyramids, mm-hmm. and like uh, it's just these ridiculous like connections that she makes about different parts of life, um, and they're both funny and scary at the same time. Yeah, and it's kind of an all-encompassing, like it kind of hits all the points of like just being alive. You right. know, it's funny, it's scary at some point, it's really sad at others, and something I really appreciated about the film was that it ended very abruptly. I found um, mm-hmm. just watching it, it was like, oh, okay, it's it's over, and that's sort of to me is also like life as well. Like, there's all these different thoughts and memories and dreams, and then it just kind of it ends very abruptly. I'd say if I had to like plot out a journey that she makes, like to the end, um, the whole movie she talks about her mother's death as well. Like that's one of the first things she brings up, uh, and she sort of battles with the idea that she never really loved her mother. Like, they didn't really have a close intimacy. Um, and she could, was trying to pinpoint the whole film, like, a moment where she felt like her mother truly loved her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she does realize what that moment was at the end. Um, yeah, what, what's it called? The mother meditation in Buddhism, where you're supposed to think of a memory of when your mom loved you unconditionally and kind of, like, reflect on that. Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, you didn't? No. You don't remember that part from the... Yeah, she talks about, like, that's apparently a meditation in Buddhism so she's trying to search out that memory of when her mother loved her yeah. unconditionally and she's having a hard time finding it and then, like you said at the end she does finally discover and there's like a sense of peace right and it's crazy too cause like uh, the, the things she talks about like her mom who she didn't care that much about it seems uh, mm-hmm. her dog who you know she loved a lot but it's her dog um, and like a friend uh, who was an artist. But she um, never really t- talks about Lou Reed. He's on screen for like a second at the end, and you can hear his voice singing on the end credits. But you know that it the whole time I kind of got the sense that it was about him yeah. more than anything else. Yeah, I think maybe she was just like so close to it emotionally that that was like the easiest way for her to talk about it was like through other kinds of acceptance of death and... Uh, and I think she's also like making sense of the modern world through these other meditations um, that sort of includes life after her husband. Like it's like, uh, what, what world am I living in now? Like what is happening? And she talks about like data collection and uh, just what cities are like now and how people relate to each other. Um, and I think she's just really just trying to make sense of what the world is is now that someone she loves so much is gone mm-hmm. and it's a really interesting way to go about it like uh yeah i mean she could have done just a straightforward you know documentary about the death of her husband or something but that would have been so like cliched and like you said she's too emotionally invested in that relationship like i don't know i kind of like that she kept some distance from that it was like kind of a loving tribute without explicitly saying like this is for right my husband also like the the 
sort of like hook for the movie, the selling point that it's about the death of her dog, that sounds really rough as well. And it's not what happens. Like it's not a, there's a lot to do with the dog dying um, and her dealing with that loss, but it's not uh, a straightforward documentary where you watch this like dog die slowly from a disease or anything. Like it's, it's just part of this larger tapestry of weird ideas. Yeah. And another kind of weird idea that, uh, I thought was interesting was when she was talking about the sudden infant death syndrome and how one theory is that, you know, babies are reliving, are they're like dreaming about a time before they were born and then they like forget to breathe. And like <laughs> that, that's one theory as to what causes it. And it's just, you know, again, it's, just a lot of like interesting little nuggets mm-hmm. of ideas in there. Uh, I like the um, Malik comparison you're making earlier, but I, I do think one huge difference between what she does here and what he does is uh, in the quality of the images. Because mm-hmm. like this movie is kind of ugly. Like it's these like nasty digital like pixelated security cam footage, uh, mm-hmm. VHS kind of uh, just distortion. Um, and I think she does it on purpose. It feels more personal, like it's like a home movie almost because yeah. of that. Um, but I just want to know what you thought of like the digital photography in the film. Well, as far as the look of it, yeah, I think that was intentional too because she's talking about surveillance state and all that, and a lot of the images seem like something you would get on, you know, a camera on the street corner, right? Someone being filmed, they don't even know it, kind of thing. I, I mean, I, yeah, I like the look of the film. It's kind of gritty and not necessarily like pretty yeah all the time you know whereas yeah like you're saying with malik it's just these overwhelmingly beautiful images and these meditations on life and that's not really what this is no and i've, I've come to appreciate films that try to uh incorporate these like new cheap versions of photography into the films like we were talking about amy does that mm-hmm. um maybe hashtag horror and uh, unfriended for sure. I or, mean, or would you put Tangerine in there as well? See, I I don't know. Tangerine doesn't look as cheap as as it's. Uh, it's interesting because it was f- like probably filmed on a cheaper. You know, it's filmed on like an iPhone. Uh huh. But the quality of the images comes out better. Yeah, they're than some of these like, other movies that are trying to imitate lesser quality. Yeah, they're like stuff. incorporating like flip phone quality footage mm-hmm. uh, the only time that's ever annoyed me was I just watched uh, Inland Empire the last David Lynch movie oh, and it man. is the most persistently ugly film I think I've ever seen in my life I you know I wa- I tried to watch that years ago and I like couldn't get through it I hated it I'm glad yeah. to hear you hate it too <laughs> <laughs> I always told myself I was gonna go back and watch it but it did not happen well uh, coming, coming back to Heart of a Dog um, I know you typically have more interest in philosophy than me. I like yeah. actually avoid reading this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, how do you think this film like handles that uh, aspect? I mean, she's like you know cherry picking ideas that mm-hmm. kind of fit with it. I, I mean, one of another one of the things I really liked. Uh, oh, I forget the philosopher's name, but where he basically talks about like language and how if you can't talk about something then it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, that's like something I've read about before. That's really interesting. And she chose some like really good philosophers to pick from. 
uh, and I, I think her Buddhism too, like had a big part in it as That's well. That's what she mentions the most, I believe, is the Buddhist uh, philosophy. And like uh, her Buddhist teacher um, advised that when the dog was dying, like that instead of putting the dog down, she like let the dog go through the pain of dying. And they like take the dog home and like spend a couple of days with it, uh, like meditating and trying to make sure it's comfortable as it transitions. And that was really interesting stuff. It's not something I think most people would recommend. I mean, most vets would recommend that you just put your dog down. But it was an interesting way of dealing with an animal's death that I'd never heard of before. Well, I mean, that, yeah, because uh, I think Buddhists are, they understand that life is kind of suffering or it's pain, and but you don't have to like suffer. It, you know, if you accept the pain and work through it. Uh, but I don't know, to like put a dog through yeah. that like a dog can't meditate you know what i'm saying like it just yeah it felt was, a little it, a little cruel but i i i still think it's an interesting idea again like, and they did give him tranquilizers so lola was doped up it's not like she yeah. was like purely experiencing pain it was definitely an uncomfortable moment of the film for me but um interesting still yeah and you know she talks to another buddhist thing talking about the 49 days Mm. Um, I forget what it's called. The is that after death? Yeah, where it takes forty nine days to transition to you know that afterlife or whatever, and in those forty nine days, you just have to like reflect. Basically, I think she kept like a a diary after the dog died for like the forty nine days, and mm-hmm. you know, I yeah, that was. I I think at least for me watching it, I got the sense that. Buddhism is probably more important to her than I mean I'm sure she's really into philosophy too but yeah I got the sense that like her religion was like an integral part of her you know who she is for sure um, and those things aren't necessarily exclusive either they seem to kind of play into each other um, and I also kind of picked up on I know she's collaborated with Burroughs before mm-hmm. and Burroughs has all these uh, books on like the afterlife and like the Egyptian um, western lands and stuff like mm-hmm. uh, crossing over um, and making sure you have all these like things prepared so that you're ready for the journey yeah uh, I was definitely picking up on that too I'm kind of kind of actually fascinated that she didn't even name drop him because uh, it seemed like very much in line with what he usually writes and another thing um, we haven't mentioned yet is the music in the yeah. film which I thought was really like kind of eerie and at some points it was like somber other times it was just kind of weird and I I mean you're definitely know more about Laurie Anderson's uh, music than I do but mm-hmm. is that like kind of typical yeah her? her um her biggest piece that she ever did like the thing that kind of start like jump started her career was this concert it was a four day well, it was a two day concert in four parts called United States one through four um, and it's all these like languid slow uh kind of classical music a lot of violin pieces and then they build into these weird uh modernist moments Mm -hmm. Uh, and she intersperses all this with these weird uh reflections on language the same way this movie is um and after that uh piece which i think is incredible you should definitely give it a listen it's like great headphones music um after that she did more pop kind of stuff she had like a pop hit with oh superman in the 80s uh which Mm -hmm. was actually from united states um, and she did uh, a couple of recordings with Burroughs and some other interesting pop things. 
Her most recent uh, project, from what I know, was Moby Dick. She like did a spoken word version of Moby Dick on top of that slow, uh, interesting, slow, eerie music. Yeah, and this feels like an extension of that. Like the music and the images in this film are kind of serving the narrative she's telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I believe it was more the other way around when she first started. Well, I'll just say like it definitely made me want to like go into her work you should definitely listen to United States 1 through 4 like that is some incredible work okay um yeah I, I I mean she's one of my favorite musicians of all time so I could probably go on forever about that but um I don't know if this do you, would you say this is a good entry point if you haven't heard her before I, I mean I for someone that hasn't really heard much of her music it felt like a good entry point in the sense that I feel like I know more about her as like person and like where she's coming from and I like appreciate her artistic vision so it makes me want to like go into her back catalog and and all that so yeah I would say it's a good entry point and the the film plays like an album like if you buy the the soundtrack the soundtrack is just um audio from the movie Mm -hmm. um and it it's like 70 minutes long so it's about how long an, an album is um and it sort of plays like a record that just happens to have this like visual element to it um, and that's how, like I just said, it was like a concert series, United States. Uh, there were like projections that went along to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is something she's been doing a while. Uh, she's obviously like good at what she does. It's her yeah. own thing. Um, so maybe this is a good entry point. I, I wasn't really sure because I know it's... I could definitely see someone like actively being aggravated by this film if they weren't into it. Yeah, I could I could as well. But I mean, personally, I, I did really enjoy it. Well, um, if you got 70 minutes and any of that sounds interesting to you, uh, it is out and available. I believe you can even watch it through HBO Go. Um, It's definitely on VOD, so uh, check it out. our emperor in his great wisdom he knows that mortal combat cannot be won by treachery how dare you speak to me of treachery your ignorance will lose for all time the keys to the realm of earth very well johnny cage i challenge you no you'll fight me I am Liu Kang, descendant of Kung Lao. I challenge you to mortal combat. Do you accept or yield? I accept. Leave us! I will take care of this impudent mortal myself. 
nice dress. time for the segment that nobody wanted to join us for (laughs) um this is a uh sort of run through of the most iconic video game movies we could come up with uh we kind of came up with this idea around the time that warcraft was in the theaters which neither of us have seen we did not see it uh i don't think either of us played that game either yeah i just i mean the trailer looked cool and all but uh yeah Eh. It was made by uh, David Bowie's son, who also did um, Duncan Jones. He did like Moon, which is kind of an interesting little art movie. Yeah. But um, so yeah, the video game adaptation is not the most uh, well-regarded um, no. genre in movies. But I think there's some really fun, goofy ones in there, and I think they've sort of lost their way from where they started. Uh, so we were just gonna kind of go back and look at like the trajectory of maybe the five most iconic uh, video game movies that co- that kind of pop into mind. Um, <laughs> and we may have left a couple off the list, so this might be a little arguable. But yeah, we didn't watch any U-Bowl movies. We didn't watch U-Bowl. We didn't watch uh, Tomb Raider, which I think you could argue should be on here. Pro- yeah, it probably would have been. But we had to narrow it down to five. Right. You know? um, so starting all the way back at the beginning, the most uh, iconic video game of all time from the most iconic video game system of all time... Uh, <laughs> Super Mario Bros. from 1993. Uh, this was a uh, not a great start financially for the video game movie. Um, people hated this film. Critics hated it. It lost a lot of money. Um, it stars John Leguizamo as Luigi Mario and Bob Hoskins as Mario Mario. Uh, they are two plumbers from Brooklyn, New York, uh, who find themselves wrapped up in a plot to save a princess from a lizard kingdom that was created by the impact of the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. Uh, So in this reality, there's a separate world where humans evolved from lizards instead of from apes, and uh, they are ruled by Dennis Hopper as King Koopa. Um, I absolutely love this movie. This is my favorite one on the list. James is a little less enthusiastic. I knew you would love it. Oh, it's so good. It's... Uh, it's so campy. Oh yeah, I, I I really like your review of it. By the way, on Swamp <laughs> Flicks, it definitely articulated why it's like it is enjoyable. Yeah, I'm not trying to make it seem like I didn't enjoy watching, but oh man, there's so much like messed up with this movie. Like the way it plays around with the mythology <laughs> of Super, it's like takes bits and pieces that sort of fit with the video game but they rework it in a very bizarre way that like the film is way darker than I remember 
it being just like the set design and mm-hmm. the costumes and everything is just kind of gross and it's like a low looking. red uh it's like a low red blade runner is about the look that's of a the... good way to describe it yeah. yeah uh but for a kid's movie it's pretty like ambitious it's got like some really big weird ideas uh for a kid's fantasy adventure it's just you kind of have to divorce it from the source material to get your mind there because, like, if you're sitting here comparing back and forth, like, oh, is this like the game? Then this movie sucks as an adaptation. But see, that that's what's interesting. You talk about the trajectory of these movies and how they seem to have lost their way. I think that's one thing that Super Mario Brothers does right. Mm-hmm. is like, you don't try to make the movie just like the game. Right. Like, because even if you do that successfully, it's not going to be a great movie. Because movies and games are like a separate medium. And this one at least tried to play around with it. I just think from reading the the history of the like the production and the fact that the directors wanted an, an adult, like more uh, a darker toned film. And mm-hmm. then the uh, studio wanted a kid friendly yeah. film and they made them rewrite the script but the sets all stayed the same. So the sets look like, like you said, really cool, like dystopian. But the jokes are like for a 10-year-old child. Yeah. And to me, like that, there's like a weird disconnect there where like the like slapstick kind of humor wasn't really fitting with the like way the film looked it was just and it makes for a really weird viewing experience <laughs> but i liked this movie as a kid though so i think it did succeed in like for as being a kids movie i think it does grab your attention if you think back to like kids movies from when we were kids like the ones that you remember the most in my mind are the ones that are like a little grittier and nastier than what's made today so like monster squad and the goonies and stuff like that have like sort of like a dangerous tone to them that I think Mario Brothers has as well even if the humor is more dumbed down than those movies are yeah I guess that's the thing I just I think it could have been an actually like really good movie if the jokes were a little I mean the jokes are like something you would um, they're so base and stupid and just like not funny it's like a joke book you'd pick up in a grocery store <laughs> like it's yeah. that kind of humor my I, I, there's some really fun like action movie one-liners like uh when uh, mario kills koopa at the end um you know spoiler alert uh <laughs> he uh explodes koopa who has turned into some kind of lizard uh he's like de-evolved which there's de-evolution de- guns in this movie of course because you know you've played the game before um, <laughs> so uh koopa gets exploded at the end and uh, mario goes later alligator that's fucking hilarious i okay so yeah. hard i was like screeching laughing at that i i also i do love that uh king koopa pretty much looks like donald trump Oh, yeah. Yeah, It's so funny. and like He had to have been doing that, right? Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. I was like, this had to be an intentional... Because Trump was still around in the early 90s. And he's got a tower. Uh, Like in the movie, Koopa has like a tower. And there's like like, plaza. Like the propaganda, the like banner of him like kissing a child. And his hair looks like... So I don't know. That was funny, you know, with the election stuff going on. Yeah, it's becoming more prescient over time. (laughs) Like Donald Trump's actually running now. Dennis Hopper is weird in this movie because it seems like he didn't quite get know the tone yeah what the hell was going on he just like <laughs> let loose and uh 
you know, Hoskins and Leguizamo do what they can. Uh, They're both great in this. They're really fun. Well, apparently, uh, something I was reading, too, is, like, they hated the script and the movie in general, so they just got drunk in their trailer, <laughs> like, every day. That's amazing. Yeah, and I don't know. I definitely got that sense that they had to power through it, because they knew how ridiculous this was, but... Uh, something else that's kind of aged poorly or greatly over time, depending on your perspective. Right. Uh, there's a scene where the two realms of Brooklyn start to merge, uh, and one of the shots that's like featured is the Twin Towers in oh, New York yeah, that... dissolving. Uh, it looks so much like news footage from 9-11. It's fucking Dude, it's creepy. it's really creepy. I thought that exact same thing when I saw that. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird, weird moment, but... But I would say uh, what's interesting here is that the argument against video game adaptations usually is that you have to make a backstory where none is needed in the game. Like in the game, you're like, oh, of course these two plumbers are going to rescue uh, a princess from right, like, that's a turtle dragon. Like, that's fine. I, I get it. I'll go rescue the princess. In the movie, they kind of have to like come up with a reason why this all happens and instead of playing it safe, they just fucking run with it so hard and like come up with all these other, different reasons. Other dimensions and de-evolution guns. And There's like sentient fungus that grows everywhere. It looks like a fucking Cronenberg and monster. I like, and I like, I really like the Goombas. Oh yeah, do with their little shrunken heads, and yeah. it's just like, yeah, they, that yeah, that's the one thing you can say is they took this idea and they did run with it. Yeah, uh, I. Again, I don't know if I enjoyed it quite as much as you did. I was like just telling myself, God, this is awful for a lot of it. But again, it was like enjoyable, kind of awful. Like there's a lot of camp value. What struck me this time too, I didn't realize that Mojo Nixon was one of the Goombas. Uh, it's like, it was like a really funny, like satirist, uh, kind of like punk jokester. Oh, okay. Inspired like the Dead Milkman and stuff like that. So oh, cool! I didn't know. That. I wouldn't have picked up on that like as a kid, obviously. So that was like interesting this time to go around. Like, oh, it's Mojo Nixon. Why is he in this? I have no idea. You know what I thought? I think my least favorite aspect of this movie <laughs> was the romance between uh, Luigi, yeah. and Princess Daisy. It was the mo- like out of nowhere. It's like, why is she interested in him? He's like fumbling with his words. He's so awkward, and then she's just like. Oh, you wouldn't be interested in me. I'm just like a famous archaeologist. archaeologist. It's like, what are you talking about? You're, <laughs> You're super better gorgeous. than this guy. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's a plumber that can't <laughs> speak to save his life. And it's just like, you're falling in love with him? Like, I I just did not buy it. Did you also it. catch on to the idea that uh, Mario is a uh, pro wrestling fan? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're going to WrestleMania. Dude, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay, uh, next on the list uh, came a year after Super Mario Brothers and made a lot more money and was pretty much in line to have a sequel uh, that never came. Uh, it's called Street Fighter, based on the button masher. Uh, what do you call those games? Just combat video games. Um, I think button smasher. Button masher, smasher, whatever. So this uh, this movie does kind of follow the plot of the video game a little clo- more closely. There's some Definitely. sort of like grand um matchup uh from combatants to stop bison from taking over the world Mm -hmm. it's kind of like this alternate history world war ii almost yeah there's definitely a lot of like political uh you know world war 
three kind of or two whatever yeah. like kind of deal going on. It's like the Axis versus the Allies, yeah, kind of stuff. Uh, so they're basically like the game, from what I remember, doesn't really give you that like backstory. It's just like people from different countries fighting each other. Right. So it makes sense when they do a film version that it's going to revolve around different alliances and a war. And so that story was like a lot easier mm-hmm. to to come up with than like the Super Mario Brothers is like so like ridiculous. It's like how do you make that? So in that way it definitely felt like it stayed very true to the game. Mm-hmm. But it's just not very good. Yeah, Street Fighter is <laughs> not a great movie. Um, I've come to realize recently that I'm not a huge uh, Jean Claude Van Damme fan. Like I, I kind of lumped him in with like Stallone and Schwarzenegger as one of those fun action movie stars. I mean, but he bores me. Like JCVD and uh, Time Cop. Right. And well, and Bloodsport's pretty. But those three are really it. For I like JCVD more than the other two, even. And that yeah. was like the recent one. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's just something about him that just like lacks charisma. Like if Arnold Schwarzenegger was in this role, this movie would be way funnier. Because the one-liners are there, but just the way he delivers them are so flat. Yeah, that I mean, that's my favorite part about the movie is like it again. It's like not taking itself too seriously, and there's a lot of funny one-liners. And I definitely think um, what's the actor's name that plays? Oh, he is the best, Robert Julia. Yeah, Julia. Uh, he's Gomez from the um, Adams Family. Adams movies. Family. He is great. Like he steals the show in this movie. So he hams it up the entire movie. And he has a lot of good. He's the only lighters. interesting part of this whole film, I would say. Um, and I, I like the Russian guy too. Oh yeah, Zangief or whatever. Yeah. He had a few. Like he's just playing this dumb, big Russian, and he has some. That's the thing. There's some good like one-liners throughout. And also, I guess uh, Kylie Minogue was one of the. Uh, she's like the blonde soldier. Oh yeah, that's that right. Was cool. That was cool. Um, Not that they give her much to do, but she's like super cute and. Uh, just like an interesting pop culture figure to see in like a 90s movie. I mean, I guess, you know, some of the martial arts stuff is okay. You know, I guess, but... Well, I did like this, and uh, Super uh, Super Mario Brothers did the same thing, uh, where they like came up with a reason why people can jump the way they do. Uh, and in both movies had these like hydraulic boots. Uh, like Robert Julia's character, Bish, uh, Bison, wears it at the end. It's and it can boots. levitate me! <laughs> <laughs> he like flies around shooting lightning and shit because he has all these like gadgets. Uh, but yeah, he really is like the heart of this movie. If there is anything entertaining about him, it is his performance. I mean, you are right that John claude Van Damme is just kind of boring. It's and... sad. Like, I, th- I think with a Schwarzenegger, this movie could have been better. Because, yeah, actually the supporting characters... You know, are all again. They all have their lines, and it's pretty funny. But um, I don't know. Just J, you know, John Claude Van Damme is like the main guy, and he just like is kind of sleepwalking through the movie. Um, I will say, Robert Julia, uh, his um, reason for doing this movie, he was actually dying of cancer during filming, mm-hmm. and uh, his kids like really wanted him to do this role. Uh, so he like did it for them and I think he died before the movie even came out oh, which man. is nuts because he puts in such like a dedicated uh, like enthusiastic performance that no one else gives and the dude's like in a tremendous amount of pain the entire time it's kind of nuts damn I didn't know that yeah he looked like very skinny mm-hmm. and that oh man that's sad he's a great actor like he's yeah. so good in that Adam's family 
makes me want to like see, see more, more of visuals. his. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't. It's hard to say why it just didn't really like do anything for me. I mean, and the year after that uh, is when Mortal Kombat came out in '95, uh, and I think that Mortal Kombat comes up with a better way to integrate its like martial arts aspect. Uh, Street Fighter like pits these um, different. Uh, warring countries against each other so that there is like a final like uh there's like a final meetup where they all start like fighting hand to hand but in mortal Kombat, it actually is about like a martial arts competition a tournament a tournament so like they if super mario brothers runs with it and like just disregards the roots of the video game mortal Kombat is really damn faithful to like the idea that there's like a tournament to save and, the world and to me like this is probably i think the best one yeah on our list it just it, it really feels like the perfect adaptation of the game. I liked like, this movie a lot as well. And it, I, a thing that doesn't really get brought up, I guess, when people are talking about it, is like the production values. Like the locations where they're shooting, I mm-hmm. think, are like in Thailand. Beautiful, like, like shots of, you know, the mountains and on the, the beach mm-hmm. and... And also the effects with like Goro, Goro is really cool, uh, and still like watching it in 2016, it still looks cool like that. I was trying to figure Goro out. He's he's got four arms and this giant head, and he's like ten feet tall. It looks like. Mm-hmm. I, some of it looks like it's stop motion animation. Some of it looks like it's animatronics. Right. And some of it might be a little CGI aided, but maybe not because when they do CGI in the movie, it looks awful. So, right. And he looks pretty realistic. So I don't know how they pulled him off, but he's definitely interesting. Yeah, the, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Because one we're going to talk about later, Doom, yeah. sort of uh, did the same thing. Like, they didn't rely on CGI. Mm-hmm. A lot of the monsters were, like, handmade. Um, and that that's sort of, yeah, the same deal with Goro, but he just looks cool. Yeah. You know, and if that movie was made now, I'm sure he would just be all CGI and it would look stupid or look like the, you know, Scorpion King. Yeah. Or something, you know. In uh, in Mortal Kombat, they do have one CGI character. It's this lizard that follows around Katana. Um, and it looks awful. Like, it yeah. looks, it's really gross looking. It's like the one mark in quality against this movie, I think. It's just how dumb this lizard looks. But yeah. um, they have these... Uh, you know, like we said earlier, it's like a fight for the fate of humanity in like an alternate dimension, and it's like a literal martial arts tournament. Uh, so it's pretty faithful to how the game feels, I think. And the characters are all archetypes, but they're all funny archetypes. There's like a, a Hollywood bozo. Yeah, Johnny Cage and uh, who else? Um, there's Jax, who's like got these uh sort of like bio. Amenities metal arms, arms. Yeah. you got Sonya and yeah. Scorpion and Sub-Zero and yeah the Scorpion and Sub-Zero matches are so fun to watch too like yeah. watching them freeze people or like rip off his face and there's like a skull that's something underneath. I you know I hadn't seen this movie since I was like in probably middle school or something yeah I begged to go see this in the theater my poor stepdad had to take me mm-hmm. I was like so stoked about it but I, I still that those fight scenes between Scorpion and Sub-Zero have always been in my memory just because how awesome they were to see as a kid and then watching them now there's like still awesome fight scenes you know it's great action set pieces they're very intricate 
Uh, the scorpion match, I would say, even in particular, is is very intricate. It starts off in the woods. And then they go down into hell. Yeah. Which is awesome. And, and then in hell, uh, there's all these layered platforms that the match sort of like goes up and down. Uh, it's it's kind of intense to watch. Yeah, the, the martial arts choreography is definitely like awesome mm-hmm. in this in this movie too like the street fighter choreography and the martial arts were like okay but yeah. this felt like way better choreographed and they uh they went for a sort of like heavy metal soundtrack which i kind of appreciated they were like killing joke on the soundtrack and stuff like that I heard yeah. some like double bass uh drum playing and on the definitely thing. yeah the soundtrack is good the the sets are cool the locations they picked are cool. Yeah, I guess you could criticize like the acting, maybe, and the script is pretty. Like the story is pretty. Just it's a corny note. movie, but it's a kids movie, and it's a based on Mortal Kombat. Yeah, game. I mean, come <laughs> on, like you know, no one's going for like an Oscar in this movie, and it does have the most aggressive theme song I think I've ever heard in a film. Yeah, which it's, I love. It's so excessive. Like that classic like Mortal Kombat <laughs> yeah too, too many beats per minute whatever they were working with is kind of ridiculous but I think this movie marks a shift where uh, they were moving away from the PG maybe uh, G even if you're thinking like Super Mario Brothers kind of well, video team adaptations yeah. they're kind of aiming more to like a teen or an older crowd but see what I also really liked about Mortal Kombat is the lack of gore Mm-hmm. Like it really is just martial arts. There's not a whole lot of like, because you remember in the game when it first came out, that's all. There was all this controversy of like, oh god, kids are playing this super violent game or whatever. And the movie is not actually that violent. I think it was rated PG thirteen. Yeah, it's mostly just like martial arts and there's like know. some flaming skulls and like I don't know. It's not. It's definitely not like a grotesque. Uh, yeah, it, but they still have a good, like, interesting way of portraying the violence. Like, I really like the scene where someone's attacking Sub Zero and he freezes them, and then their body just shatters in the ground, and there's like his severed head. It's like this frozen block of ice. Like, yeah. it looks cool. Yeah, it does. Even if it's not like, uh, you know, like a violent horror film. But I, I do think that the movie grew up a little bit compared to like Street Fighter just a year before. I, I think there there is an older audience in mind there, even if it is just as goofy. Yeah, Street Fighter felt like it was targeted to, like, 12-year-olds. Yeah. This was targeted more to, like, you know, 14, 15-year-olds or something. But, anyway, I guess that brings us to the next one. Yeah, uh, so the director of Mortal Kombat, uh, his name's Paul W.S. Anderson. Not Paul Anderson, but Paul W.S. Anderson. Um, he, yeah, I had to do a double take there. I was like, there's no way I... <laughs> he's, he's done a couple things outside of video game uh, adaptations. He did this uh, remake of the Roger Corman movie, um, Death Race, uh, that I've heard some decent things about. But um, this one, uh, he did Resident Evil in 2002, uh, right after he did Mortal Kombat. This is like his next project. Um well, maybe there's something in between. It's seven years, but yeah. <laughs> this is like his next big project, I guess. Um, this uh, is m- moving the video games even further into an adult crowd, I would say. I think this one's rated R. It's like a nasty zombie horror picture mm-hmm. uh, with some kind of some elements of the thing. Like there's some like kind of gross mutated monsters that aren't well, quite definable. But I do think one one thing to note though is like you're talking about 
how the video game movies are progressing and getting you know more to an adult audience, mm-hmm. more violent. I think that's also because the games themselves. Right. When you think about it, we're going from Super Mario Brothers to Street Fighter to Mortal Kombat to Resident Evil. You know that those games are like more violent than the one before. So and they're following it, their audience as the audience grows up as well. I think. Yeah. I mean, there's always young kids who are going to be like starting to play video games for the first time. You know, they they came out with, like an Angry Birds. Well, yeah. Movie recently. We didn't do that one. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, yeah. it, I think that's typical is, like, they go after the audience that played the game. You know, and that, that makes sense. Um, well, uh, Resident Evil has kind of defined Paul W. Sanders' career since then. He's done five of these now. He's got a sixth one coming out. I did not out. realize there were so many. Yeah, it's lives. ridiculous. Uh I think the sixth one that's coming out next year is supposed to be the final chapter, so maybe you can just move on with his life now. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is kind of where modern video game movies start. Like, I think this is what they feel like now. Mm-hmm. If you think about um, this, that mo- this movie's Agent 47 that came out recently, uh, stuff like that. It's, it's very CGI-heavy at times. Um, it can be kind of dumb uh, and simple, but I still liked this movie. I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I I don't know how I had never seen it before. It's just been off my radar. This is my first time watching it. Me too. And I can tell you why I didn't watch it though. It's because I thought it was a zombie picture. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. There's some like Mila Jovovich in a negligee shooting zombies for 90 minutes. Like, that sounds okay. It doesn't sound like something I wanted to like rush out to watch. Yeah. But there's more interesting stuff going on here. There's like AI robots and uh there's this whole like anti-corporate message yeah the umbrella corporation Um, yeah and (laughs) it and i know we're we're going to talk about this film last but it basically has a similar story like structures like doom Mm -hmm. where it's kind of you know a team of uh you know agents or whatever that are on this mission and they get they're getting picked off one by one and you know we've seen that a lot before but the way resident evil does it is like so much more interesting and keeps you like interested in the story uh than the way doom does it yeah which is yeah, um, we'll get to that one but there's also just more interesting like monsters and things there's like more ideas yeah with the dog like the scene with the dogs mm-hmm. was like super gross and i yeah um, I mean, we can just jump right into Doom. Doom came out in 2005. I think that's, like, the worst movie on this list. Yeah. I think it probably has heralded in an era of, like, uninspired video game adaptations. I think it cribs a little bit from Resident Evil. It definitely borrows heavily from Alien, which I guess you could say both movies kind of do. But Also, there's a really telling scene at the end of Doom um, where it goes... To first person shooter perspective, yeah. Which to me, like, I know they had that hardcore Henry movie that came out. I kind of liked it. Recently, it's really gross, but I liked it. And that I, that actually looked really cool. But to me, that kind of signal, like, kind of the the death of like something is missing when you. It's like I'm watching someone play a video game at that point. Right. It's like you're sitting at your friend's house and they're playing Doom, and I don't get to play. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's definitely the most memorable scene in the movie, but it kind of signals that like the filmmakers just gave up and it's like, well, I guess we'll just 
basically play Doom at the, <laughs> for the last 15 minutes of this movie. And it, it's kind of sad when, like, the only takeaway I have from a movie is, okay, there's that first-person shooter thing. But besides that, uh, I was just thinking about, like, how much better the careers have gotten for, like, every single person involved. Like, uh, Carl Urban was in um, uh, the Star Trek movies, and he was in that awesome Dread movie from mm-hmm. a few years ago. Uh, the Rock is, like, in a small role in here when he really should be the star. Uh, and it- and the thing is, I really like The Rock, but he's not good in this movie. No, he's not. I don't know if I don't know if it's because it was an early role for him. He didn't quite get his acting chops yet, but he just like gives a really flat performance in here. It's very uninspiring. And then uh, the girl from Gone Girl, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but um, like the main actress from that, uh, yeah, she's really good in this. Yeah, they but they've all they, gone on to way better. They've all things. like moved on, yeah, and it's just kind of like a sad, really middle ground. Like this movie just doesn't try that hard to do anything. No, and you know what it, what really bothered me about it too was that it's so damn dark. Mm-hmm. The whole movie is like in pitch black. I I had a hard time making out like what the hell is going on here, in the action scenes because it's in the dark. And I get that they were trying to recreate the video game where a lot of stuff you're like in the shadows and something pops out of you and it you know the game was really scary playing it as a kid but like watching it as a movie it's like I gotta be able to see what's going on and when there's these action scenes in the dark I can't you can't make out what's happening you know I had fun watching this in the theater in 2005 I was probably probably drunk or something uh, <laughs> is it's not good. The line I remembered from the movies when the Rock goes "Semper Fi, motherfucker." motherfucker. Yeah, uh, that like is what stuck with me. So every time I think of the movie, I just think of that goofy one-liner. But if you look, if you actually watch it, it's like there aren't enough moments like that. It's just kind of like a dull. It's really um, flat. The whole right. and the thing too. Uh, another kind of bright spot was the monsters. I oh, thought yeah. they looked really cool. There's some kind of Cronenberg, uh, maybe the first Alien kind of thing going on, where it's the unknown. Like you can't really tell what what they even are. And yeah, like, and then you find out that they're actually like humanoids. Yeah, you know. So the, the there was some stuff that was cool. You know, the monsters. I guess that one first person scene. I just can't say that there's anything accomplished in Doom that wasn't done better in Resident Evil. Right. And I don't even think Resident Evil's that great of a movie. Like, I liked it, but it wasn't like a, like a mind revolution, you know, like... It, yeah, it's interesting that they, they're making, like, a, they've had six of those. Like, yeah. it, it was good. Yeah, you know, I'm not hating on the movie, but I don't know if it warrants, like, six movies at this point. I it mean, might just be that the video games are so popular. Uh, that, that they have films they keep have, making money. And, right. Uh, also, you know... I think Resident Evil is an interesting starting point for a franchise. Like, there's enough interesting ideas. I, I definitely... Like, that's a it's that's why I like comparing Resident Evil and Doom, because Resident Evil does a lot of things right that Doom doesn't do at all. Like, right. You know, and there definitely is, like you said, there's room to tell further stories at the end of Resident Evil. Doom is just a self-contained bleh. Of, you know, it, <laughs> Not not good at all. Definitely the worst one on the list. Yeah, I do think if you're gonna try to track a uh, trajectory here from like Super Mario Brothers to Doom, it it I could see why people are down on the idea of a video game adaptation at this point. 
because um, sticking to the script so closely from like your source material to the point where you're just sort of like going through the motions it's mm-hmm. not interesting like to uh, even like Hardcore Henry is more interesting than this movie because it's very playful uh, and does that first person uh, right. thing for the entire run at least it has some kind of like hook this was just like a generic action movie that happened to be based off a video game and didn't even utilize the talent it had on staff in like an interesting way um, yeah and I think the thing too is like video games have evolved to where there is a lot of storytelling Mm-hmm. in a lot of modern games and it feels a little unnecessary to make a movie about a game at this point because they're kind of already started starting to blur the lines you know between video game and film so it just seems a little redundant yeah well i know world of warcraft uh made like a shit ton of movie in china so there will likely be a sequel to that uh, maybe I'll give that one a shot. <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that some other time. An Angry Birds. Yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. This was an interesting uh, thing to pull, but I, I don't know if it's a nostalgia thing or what, but I definitely had more fun with the 90s versions, uh, particularly Super Mario Brothers and Mortal Kombat were like eccentrically ridiculous in a way that the new muted adult versions of the video game movie aren't. Uh, and it's kind of kind of a bummer because it's a fun goofy medium of entertainment so why wouldn't the movies match that sort of playful atmosphere is a good question yeah uh i don't know what the answer is i guess they're just playing it safe um and maybe the answer is that super mario brothers bombed so no one wanted to like repeat that mistake which which sucks because they like set up a sequel at the end oh the sequel would have been so good and and it just never happened the sequel they set up uh princess peach oh no it's not even princess peach it's princess Daisy. daisy which i don't understand why they did that so not princess peach comes back from the lizard dimension and uh has like some kind of laser cannon and is like we need to go save my world or both of both of our worlds are in trouble so it would have been cool to like have her do something that's not like damsel in distress uh kind of well who knows i I mean maybe they'll make it one day (laughs) poor bob hoskins is dead so they have to replace mario and he was he was kind of essential to this yeah he did a great job as mario but Uh, anything you got uh working that you want to plug while we're here or no man uh I would expect some recordings to start floating around the internet for my band. So. And uh, there's a little bit of snippet of that on this episode, a little teaser. Um, and I guess if you're going to go check out something on Swamp Flicks, uh, I've been working on this project where I watch all of the movies referenced in Roger Ebert's biography, Life Itself. Uh, there's going to be over 200 of these, and I've only gotten through 17 of them so far. But um, Holy shit, dude. <laughs> if you kind of want to track, uh, it's it's interesting because it's not like, it's not like his great movie series. It's not like him saying like these are amazing films. It's just movies he happened to mention as he was talking about his life, uh, and it's so it's got a weird cross uh, platform of you know really great art films that I'd never seen before, like Citizen Kane and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and then you know uh, dog movies like Shiloh and My Dog Skip. Like it's not like a, a artistic. Uh, overwhelming thing there's like a good mix in there cool so that's called uh, Roger Ebert Film School and I try to do those about you know at least once every week or two so um, check those out on the website and uh, we'll see you next time bye bye bye